We can't afford this. I know it. Well, you'll have to fix it. Not this kind of a situation. The man's dead. His goddamn eyes are still open. You'll have to fix things. I don't care how. Just get me out of this town tonight. It's not this kind of a situation, Maury. We got cops. We got district attorneys. We got reporters. We got shit you never heard of, man. Fix it. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rolaine. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select, and we will discuss why it is significant to us. We are at episode 36, which is back to Cole's choice, so what have you selected? This time around, I have selected Payday from 1973, directed by Daryl Duke, Written by Don Carpenter and starring Rip Torn, Annika Pree, Elaine Heilweil, and Michael C. Gwynn. Before we get going, I have to apologize for my voice just slightly. I've been fighting bronchitis for a week now, and I don't know what it's going to be like by the time we get to the end, but we are going to soldier on and do our best. I think you also swallowed Brenda Vaccaro, right? <laughs> we would know if I'd done that. <laughs> Okay, Payday, as one of the taglines says, is 36 hours in the life of a madman. Which I think the only reason they put that on the poster or on the DVD advertisement is because if you put 36 hours in the life of a repugnant, unrepentant, vile piece of human garbage, no one would have gone to see it. Which they probably didn't go to see it anyway. They could have also just written 36 hours in the life of Rip Torn, and I would have believed that as well. (laughs) Payday is the story of Maury Dan, who is a sort of 60-watt celebrity, lower-tier country singer who is on the road between Alabama and Nashville. A very eventful 36 hours is covered here. Things start, as they often do, on a weekend in Alabama in the parking lot of a honky-tonk. Well, it's actually more of a honky-tonk supper club hybrid. It looks like a Christian roundup in 1950 (laughs) to me. These folks are definitely having a big night out, the people that have come to the Maury Dan show. And this opening scene, which starts with Maury on stage playing his hit single, quote-unquote hit single, is remarkably efficient for just exactly how much it introduces. It shows us every pivotal character in the film in about three minutes and points out very clearly to us one of the themes of the film is that every single one of them is somehow on the make. We see his big smiling headshot first and then we come on the man himself and I believe Riptorn insisted on doing his own singing in this. He did. It's very much more like a spoken word delivery almost. It's it's very serious and plotting. It makes sense that it's a spoken word delivery because Shel Silverstein actually wrote this tune and he's more of a poet than a songwriter, although he did write a number of pretty prominent country songs in yes. the early 70s. It was really effective for me because it sets him apart from other people. It makes him almost an iconoclast in a very small way. Though I do have to say, when I first saw him sweating on stage, I thought of Charles Manson. <laughs> did you? Maybe it was because we just watched Helter Skelter again. No, I did not think of Charles Manson. I thought of other people who occupied a similar strata in country music in that time. That sort of 
iconoclast that you mentioned. And he's clearly patterned on a number of people, and that takes in a diverse range all the way from Hank Williams to Waylon Jennings and on and on. And it made me think specifically of the delivery, at least, that you were talking about, that type of performer that gets by much more on his guts and his wits than he does any particular talent. He's not a great or even good singer, for that matter. It is very much about his personality and his connection to the audience, it feels like. He's definitely not a pretty boy. Oh, no. And I think, at least in what he is producing, the songs themselves are supposed to be more about heart. Heart and Americana. Common folk. Yes. So he's trying to make that connection even if he doesn't actually feel it. Which, he doesn't actually feel anything. Anything. As I mentioned in this opening scene, as the camera moves around the club, we're introduced to all of the prominent players. We see Anna Capri in the background as Maury's girlfriend, Maylene. We see Elaine Heilweil off in the fringes, who turns out to be his next new girlfriend. We see the chauffeur, Chicago. We see the efficient, predatory manager, McGinty. We see everyone who plays a prominent role, including... Significantly to me, the sidemen of the band, another element of that thing about these guys that get by by guile, they surround themselves, if they're smart, with players who are always going to be better than them. It's a, an undercurrent of unspoken tension in a lot of bands and in a scene or two in particular in this film where everybody knows they are dependent on him for their living knowing full well that there are much more talented people in general than he is, and much more human people than he is. Now, I know I said 36 hours in the life of a repugnant, vile human being, or not even human being, but I don't mean that as a condemnation of the film. I want to make that clear right away. Definitely not. It is a condemnation of that character, and in fact, almost every character in the film. There's no one in this thing that feels redeemable, to me, some far worse than others. But even the innocence is a faux innocence. I might debate that later on with the character Chicago, but oh, we'll okay. see when we get there. Okay. I do have one particular sequence that might debate your debate. Absolutely. Really, there's no one that you're particularly rooting for, no. that's for sure. No. But we've that you might pity, but no one that you are pulling for to succeed in what they are trying to do. We've had this discussion before that the movie doesn't have to have likable characters in order to love it. No, absolutely not. You would really be pushing it if you wanted to classify Rip Torn as an anti-hero in this. To me, it's just anti. Yes. No hero. There's nothing heroic about this. There's no outlaw troubadour. There's nothing romantic, no matter how you distort it. This image that he's created, we see this as the set ends, and he is basically working the crowd mm -hmm. at exactly their level and no higher. There's nothing unexpected. He does exactly what they ask of him. And then the moment that he's finished with that, all of that bonhomie is gone, and he's all business. I would say he's even all business while that's happening, because the entire time he's doing the glad handing, he's also scanning and sizing up his next conquest. It's true. Those wheels are always turning. They just don't necessarily have enough wherewithal to spot that in him. He's so good in this. 
I love this movie, or at least his performance. The movie I do love, but his performance is obviously the real strong suit. Do we want to get into Rip Torn now, or do we want to save that for later on? What do you think? We'll save it a little bit. Let's get a little further into the film. Well, speaking of that next conquest, we see little blonde Sandra Butterfield and her sugar daddy. And he offers to autograph an album for her. Let me just do that in the backseat of this car, by the way. (laughs) Not just any car. Cadillac. Cadillac. Very prominent. It's a Cadillac that basically is his cocoon for the next 36 hours. Now, in the meantime, we've got the manager and the club owner, I'm assuming, Mm -hmm. reviewing the sales. Now, when you see something like this, the real business end of the music business or the touring business, more accurately. Does that make you feel anything as a touring musician? We had this conversation in the previous episode of yours when we talked about once about the elements of the film that are true to life and how much of this is actually accurate as to what goes on. And I can tell you, yes, not all of them. I'm not saying this is a blanket statement, but there are club owners that are scumbags. (laughs) And there have been times very definitely where we know We have filled up a room, and that person said to us, well, we didn't make that much money at the door, so here you all made $7 a piece. That is absolutely true to life. It's why I've always admired and used as a model bands like Fugazi and guys like Steve Albini who encourage being your own manager and knowing every facet of the business, taking care of your own thing. I understand, again... Not every band is full of people who can do that. Ours is, so I feel like we're really lucky in that. We book all of our own shows. We collect all of our own money. We control everything about the music we release. And I highly recommend that do-it-yourself thing if you can all afford it. We're talking about two different things, though. If you're talking about wanting to be a successful musician, that is something you can do absolutely on your own terms and control every aspect of it. What Maury wants is to be a star, and that's a different machinery, and that requires a different set of skills and a different set of personnel. Maury has definitely chosen his personnel wisely for Mm -hmm. the sociopath he is. He's got the biggest shark, the leanest, meanest fixer in McGinty. When I was talking about redeemable characteristics, I think McGinty is the character that we can say the nicest thing about in that he's efficient. That may be the best compliment that we can pay any character in this movie. He is there to do his job, and he does his job very well. Mm. Again, it doesn't take a shark to do all of these particular things at this level. The collecting of the door, for instance, which is what they're doing in this particular scene. But it certainly is helpful to have the person who is handling all of that be on the ball. And not necessarily ruthless, but very definitely efficient and keen on detail. It's an easy thing to lose track of when it's 3 a.m. and you're tired and you just want to get on the road because you've got 400 miles to go to be in the next town the next day. Those types of people who run those types of places are counting on you to be dumb and tired and in a hurry. And it pays to not be. This whole movie feels exhausted. That cold and empty feeling that you get when you're tired and it's late and you still have a long way to go. The whole movie feels like it's 2 a.m. in America and the house lights have just come up. I think the flip side of that is that Maury, as a sociopath, can't essentially be trusted to close those loops himself. No. 
he would just end up committing violence if he thought that the club owner was trying to cheat him. Whenever anybody comes to him with anything that's even remotely approaching an honest or query that's from the heart, he's got no capacity to be able to deliver that honesty back to the other person. So he's got to have this fixer in place so that he can maintain this separate image. This is very much the reality, this life on the road for everyone who is below. They mentioned Buck Owens. They mentioned Johnny Cash. Everyone who is just a step below that, all the way down to the bottom, this is how you live. This is how you make your money. You make your money playing these shows. You don't have licensing deals. You don't have huge record sales. The money you make in Mobile is the money you need to get to Birmingham, which is the money then you need to get to Nashville. So it's a never-ending cycle, and you've got to be on top of it. The part of that that actually fits with Maury's character, though, is that is short-term thinking. That is night to night to night. And I'm not thinking anything past between getting here to there, and then what comes after that, we'll deal with that tomorrow. And it's all fueled by that 2 a.m., sense of what drug can I take that gets me from point A to point B. It's all fueled by Benzedrine is what it's fueled by. I mentioned little blonde Sandra Butterfield earlier. He dispatches her in the backseat of his car. We see her go back to her sugar daddy with messier hair. Fixing her dress. Yeah. He asks where she's been. Oh, I was just in the bathroom. In the meantime, he gets his members of his payroll back into his car, including his girlfriend, And they head back to this motel room where they and the band are playing cards, getting food. The extraneous women are just there, smoking, looking for a channel on the TV, looking lost. And we see somebody bring in that big bag of McDonald's food. That logo, that could not have been a coincidence, right? They show that so prominently. I don't think McDonald's paid for for that product placement. But it's life on the road in 1973. And when your work day ends at 3 a.m., then this is just sort of the thing that happens. You don't have a schedule that normal people adhere to. It's a completely different lifestyle. And you're living in your own sort of self-contained universe. We learn some more important information here that for the rest of us would stop us in our tracks. But for him, it's just another day. He's probably being sued. (laughs) They're on their way ultimately to Nashville, and his manager is talking about these possible bookings. We mentioned Johnny Cash, and he states clearly he'd rather stay on the road than wait for this possibility of maybe working with Johnny Cash. I got the sense, though, that it was more of a prideful thing than it was anything to do with a keen business decision. Whatever level he's going to be at, I'm assuming he thinks everybody should wait for him, Mm -hmm. not the other way around. Well, this whole section is both relatable and not relatable to my experience. The one thing that's relatable is the tedium of that type of travel, which I think Rosamond is getting the first inkling of as she's sitting around watching these transactions that take place every night for them, which she has never seen before. I get the impression with her being the country mouse type of character that she is venturing out into the big wide world for the first time and all of this is new to her and it is not nearly as glamorous as she imagined clearly i think in her mind it's like getting picked up by a movie star Mm -hmm. and you think you're going to roll back to his big mansion or something and you're going to be drenched in furs and diamonds instead of sitting in a shitty hotel room watching other people have some semblance of fun 
again, like I said, not all of it is relatable to me. When we travel, when we're on the road, we stop in national and state parks and camp as much as we can rather than be in hotel rooms. It's much more fun. I do not want to see Maury Dan anywhere near our <laughs> beautiful national parks. <laughs> but there are also things that happen in that scene that do happen to us. You run into kindred spirits on the road. You do play music because it's what you love to do. You are sitting around just swapping the stories about what you've done for the last 36,000 miles. And the camaraderie is great. And it is a really fun time. It is, at least the way we tour, it is a blast. Of course, we are the band that the most intense thing that happens to us is we're arguing over which science podcast we want to listen to. Yeah. But not who is the bigger sociopath. Right. That would be me, probably. Or <laughs> Stephen Smith. So. <laughs> Stephen Smith. Are you listening, Stephen? <laughs> <laughs> now, Rip Torn is supposed to be the charming rake, I would assume, is at least how he plays to this naive young girl. In 1973, who else occupies that for you? If you are casting a film and you are saying, oh, we need an anti-hero, somebody who is uh, rugged, handsome, but a total bastard, but everyone still loves the guy. I think maybe Steve McQueen might mm. come kind of close, but he can get by on his extreme charm and handsomeness. Rip Torn, you don't necessarily consider handsome in the same no. way. I was trying to think, basically, of who in the Hollywood firmament would allow themselves to be filmed sitting on the toilet in the most terrible hotel room ever in Alabama. I did mention Charles Manson earlier. That's, he was... Charles Manson was otherwise occupied at the time. <laughs> also not a great singer. True. I think it's a great time then to get into Rip Torn. Okay. Let's talk about him at length. I love the guy. Well, I want to know, do you recall what first drew you to Rip Torn? I absolutely do. Yes. Being the age I am and the things that were coming out when I was becoming aware of movies and choosing them for myself, Beastmaster. That was my first exposure to Rip Torn in 1982, was Beastmaster. Obviously, as I grew and my tastes evolved, I went in search of other things. Everybody who paid attention knows how funny he was in The Larry Sanders Show. I love The Larry Sanders Show, and especially Rip Torn. Being a theater person, I'm guessing you have a different entry point. Well, okay. And also not into the fantasy sword and sandal thing. That's in, correct, because I only saw Beastmaster with you a year ago. And you immediately wanted to go out and get ferrets. <laughs> Incorrect. <laughs> Everyone knows ferrets are the most disgusting animal ever created, and no one should ever have them as a pet. <laughs> I had to first, though, realize that Rip Torn and Rip Taylor were not the same person, <laughs> and determine which was which... And who I should look for. I love both of them, to be honest. Uh, if I yeah. could be somewhere with the two of them, if that was my entourage. I don't. I think that would be the opening of the seventh seal. That would be the time of my life. Spraying confetti, breaking into banks. Being a theater person, my auspicious introduction to Rip Torn was in 1985 with Summer Rental. <laughs> he played the wonderful Scully... He's so great in that. I didn't know who he was before. And it took a while for me to learn more about his canon, 
I would have sworn you were going to say Sweet Bird of Youth is what I was going to guess. No, no. It was Summer Rental. Okay, well then I don't think you have a leg to stand on to scoff at Beastmaster. Also City Heat, quite possibly. Okay. I saw that too. Uh, in the theater. Later on, as I started to get more interested in connections between mm-hmm. people, it was learning more about him through Geraldine Page, his wife, mm-hmm. his second wife, actually, and discovering more about their work and how amazing they are. Now, when did he divorce Geraldine Page? Because I know he was later and still is now married to Amy Wright, another actress that we really like. Yes, absolutely. Uh, he never divorced Geraldine Page. He was married to Geraldine Page until her death. He and Amy Wright got together before that. Amy Wright had his baby. They all worked together. They maintained separate households. They all knew about each other. And Geraldine Page died, sadly. And then he and Amy Wright got married. It's a complex web. (laughs) I look at these things. The Magic Lantern TMZ edition. You read more about him. And I don't really understand how he ever got anything done. He's such a volatile... Mm. nut but is amazing and does great work and has great work happen around him it's not as though he seems to be preventing other people from doing their job well and one with one great exception yes. being Maidstone yes and even that I think that madness elevated that film I feel like because Mailer is not a great filmmaker now I've worked with some people you can say, yes, they elevated the work, but would you do it again? No. And then other people, you would. It's funny because in Maidstone, at the end, he literally split Norman Mailer open, hitting him in the head with a hammer in front of his wife and children, and they got into a bitter physical fight, and Mailer bit his ear, blood is everywhere, screaming, crying, and that's actually in the finished version of the film. And then this, in which he plays an absolute shit heel. And seems completely destructive, self and otherwise. Daryl Duke had nothing but nice things to say about him. Said he was easy to work with, generous with the other actors. Very intent, yes. Very stubborn, yes. But didn't have anything bad to say about the guy. He has an entire section of his wiki page devoted to onset conflicts. (laughs) He sued Dennis Hopper. And won. And won. In fact, it got doubled the amount he won and then won again in the appeal Dennis Hopper ended up losing out twice almost a million dollars in total in that deal all this being said starting with Beastmaster me starting (laughs) with Summer Rental what keeps you in this for one thing and I ended up discovering other great things he did for instance the man who fell to earth that's probably the other prominent example of a film I really love that he's great in, but this far and away, I think is my absolute favorite performance of his. I think there are certain performers, and I include Geraldine Page in this, that are clearly working with some other force within them that is greater than any specific talent or charisma or looks or personality. It's something so magnetic and majestic even. I think this is a majestic performance that sets them so far and away above everyone else that you see and only they could do those parts. Now do you think in this particular instance he seems so far and above the other actors in this because of that characteristic within him or is it also a combination of the fact that 
you've got some non-professionals here. You've got some actors that aren't the greatest. Is it also in relation to the relative skill level of who he is working with? Thank you for bringing up casting, because this is definitely a list of folks who you've never seen before and you have never seen again. I think this film was a miracle of casting. It's about face and look and attitude, not people coming in to do a virtuoso performance. Mm -hmm. I actually don't look at the other people and compare what they're doing to him. They seem quite naturalistic for their time and place and doing what they're doing. There is something in his eyes. There is something vibrating out of him. Hate. <laughs> yes. For one thing. Fear? Loathing? I don't think... Antipathy he... for the world? Antipathy, maybe, but Shame? I don't think... I... You mentioned the sociopathic nature. I don't think that person is afraid. I don't think that person this... knows or shows fear. The only thing that might manifest itself that way is... I am being inconvenienced because there is something in between me and what I want. I think it's the manifestation of his own power and his own sense of righteousness. Righteousness or self-righteousness? Self-righteousness, maybe, but that whatever he does is the absolute correct thing. You mean the character in his yes. own mind? Yes. Okay. So, to answer your question, I don't really compare him to the other performers, okay. even though they might be not the greatest. The commentary track, I think summed up Anna Capri's contribution in a nutshell in that she is an actress that always looks like someone's girlfriend. And that is exactly what she is. And she's fantastic in another one of the films that we did before, Darker Than Amber. I really like what she does. And I was looking back through her credits. She had an enormous amount of credits for mm. a relatively short span. A lot of television. A lot of television. And she looks very specific, mm -hmm. like you said. All of these other folks have got to roll with what he is doing, which requires a lot of work. To say the least. So that's why I'm not going to denigrate anything that they may or may not be doing or compare them because they still got to sit there and react to whatever it is he's throwing at them. There is just something about him that moves in and out of whatever is happening. I'm thinking about the next few moments in the film when we see him going through his Rolodex mm -hmm. and smoking a joint and making this aborted phone call and the sense of his frustration and dissatisfaction and also moving through music at the same time, he can communicate a lot in a short amount of time and his face is so evocative as mm -hmm. well. We see him go to Maylene, who was Anna Capri, trying to shake her awake. And this exchange that they have that's very brief where she says, I love you, sweet man. Where in the hell does that come from? I don't know. <laughs> he says, thank you, dear. And then we have that argument about him being tired of her or not. She's clearly missing the forest for the trees. Mm -hmm. Well, is she? Because she makes it very clear in later exchanges with other characters, specifically Rosamond, that she is in this to get as much out of it as she can right now because she knows it's not sustainable. The forest would be, he can't care for anyone at any time, okay. and so there's never any love or desire for you, really. So he can't ever actually be tired of you because he never uh, grew to you. Gotcha. That exchange between the two of them is only slightly less tender than the other coupling that has happened in the room next door, in which Bob, one of the sidemen of the band, has taken Rosamond, the country mouse, back to the room 
to get what he knows, wink, wink, that she came here for and ends up raping her. Yes, he's holding her down, kissing her. She's fighting back. We cut at that point, and then we come the next day and see them together, her waking up in the bed with him. She's still there, but she was the victim of a sexual assault. Absolutely. Did she know that? Really? Did she have the words for that at the time? That naivete, I don't know. Yeah. Now that you asked that question. And Everyone it, else does. The audience clearly knows. They do. Would it have stood up in any sort of court? Would any policeman have done anything about it? I, I doubt it very seriously. It certainly feels incredibly distasteful to watch right now. Oh, it's, again, repugnant. These characters are often irredeemable. And the thing that happens next just goes to underline that. It catches you a little off guard, and then you realize what you're thinking. I'll explain in a minute when we get there. Maury wakes up Bob, gets the group together, and they're heading over to Maury's mother's house. She's in bed. She looks like a pillhead waif, really. I think they were trying to play on the ruined southern matriarch tradition. I guess. She says she's 51 at some point, and I think, what? You can be ruined at 51. Clearly. What? Why are you looking at me? <laughs> <laughs> I don't uni- know a thing about that. The universal you, not okay. the you you. Gotcha. Well, she's real thin, won't get out of bed, has not been taking care of his super sweet dog, Snapper. It's a great name for a hound. It is. Maury goes back to his guitar case and then pulls out basically a handful of pills. Throws them at her. This should hold you for a while. Now, every interaction that Maury has with Snapper, it's very tender. It makes me think, can sociopaths only care for animals? But that's not the case. Does he really feel anything? It sure looks like he does. I think so. I think it's the one relationship in the film in which there is actual some genuine emotion on his side telling that it is actually not with a human being yes though he does part with the dog because he can never pass up a good deal he can never turn down a bit of coin in his pocket that's true it's in this section that the question came to me which is what gives any of these characters pleasure Mm -hmm. Is there anything that makes them actually feel good inside in the way that I think of pleasure? I was going to say, you have to define that a little bit more for me. Because yes, I think there are things that momentarily fleeting give them physical sensations that are pleasurable. Sex, drugs, alcohol, whatever it is that they're consuming that does not last beyond that flicker. It all looks so tired. They look so tired. Well, they've been up for 36 or more straight hours. Yeah. With Coca-Cola and Benzedrine and whatever else. And saying that now, and you asking that question in tandem, make me think about that thing that Orson Welles says about the difference between a happy story and a sad story is where you decide to stop telling it. Where along the line could you have chosen to stop this movie and have it be a happy ending. Literally four minutes in when he's saying hello to the people after his performance. Yeah. Any point after that. Or maybe in the middle of the song. <laughs> well, he gets into a brawl with Bob over the dog. Again, though, I think it's because his pride is wounded as much as anything else. Bob is implying that his mother cannot take care of the dog. That hurts his feelings for whatever reason. I just don't think he wants anyone questioning anything he does. Yeah, don't tell me what to do or what to think. Yeah. 
So Bob makes him an offer to take the dog off his hands, spitefully gives him $100 plus an extra five for his trouble, and they have a brawl in the front yard. Which comes to nothing because, eventually, he lets Bob have the dog, he takes the money. And he fires Bob. Right. And two things happen in that, that, like I mentioned before, underline how terrible these people are. Bob, who we're starting to feel maybe a little bit of sympathy for, because he clearly wants to do right by this dog, was a rapist ten minutes ago. Yes. And what does it say about him that, or even the audience, that we might be slightly swayed and forget that for a moment and be on this guy's side because he is up against an even larger malevolent force in Maury Dan because he has just sexually assaulted someone. I'm only on Snapper's side. Okay. That's it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, everybody in this scene, you've got Bob the rapist dog lover, Maury who has sold off the dog and essentially in firing Bob and leaving, traded the dog for Rosamond as if they're equal properties and things he can own. And you've got Mom in the background, self-pitying speed freak, sadly hanging the laundry. It is a tableau of complete misery. And in addition to that, for a moment we see Chicago, the driver, he's going to do his job again and try to intervene in this fight with a gun to defend his Maury, defend his boss. Why? What does he get out of this? Because he knows what side his bread is buttered on, and that's it. So they head back to the motel. They round up everybody, including Rosamond, who asks where Bob is. Bob's not here anymore. You're with me now, essentially, is what he's telling her. They get back on the highway. They're playing a fun little game of chicken with a pistol. So it's been guns and pills and Dr. Pepper and brawls and bribes and VD. and Everything you can possibly squeeze into an overnight road trip. The film itself isn't really technically dazzling, but I think the one thing that Duke does that is really effective, so much of this sh- is shot in tight close-up, especially sweaty close-ups, that the whole thing feels extremely claustrophobic, and it gives you a very definite sense of being in that car, moving from place to place. This is your entire self-contained, small environment. Your whole life takes place in the back seat of this Cadillac, And those tight, unflattering close-ups really put across what that feels like, the temperature, what that car probably smells like. You get a sense of the whole thing. And I think it was a really wise thing that he employed so much of that throughout the movie. Because so much of it is about the landscape of the face. Definitely. We talked about casting, and it looks like Alabama because it was filmed in Alabama. Mm. There's nothing glamorous about it. And he lets everybody do their job. And in addition to the litany of those things that I just ran down, you also have a list of things that has been Rosamond's initiation, essentially. You've got sexual assault, drugs, whiskey straight from the bottle, eventually murder. There are things that have happened or are going to happen to her in the course of basically a day's time. And I keep thinking about what she expected for that day when she woke up and thought, oh, I'll go to a show tonight. And now this is where she is and what is happening to her. I think back to the original scene where we meet everybody, Mm -hmm. like you mentioned. She's clocking him the whole time. There's some element, even if it is on the naive side Mm -hmm. and on the Hollywood side, there's some element of, 
I had got to get next to this guy. Yeah. It's based on nothing. I don't feel any sympathy for her because of that. I think that she is a stupid person with no experience, and that shows. Mm -hmm. And she is then content after this point to follow along with these things and to affirmatively stick with him. How much of this is Stockholm Syndrome, though? Because you've been through a traumatic event or two by this point. And if you are that far out of your depth, can you really blame her? Because what is her other option? Right. She feels like all of her options have been removed. We find out later on when she finally says, I'm ready to go home, but I don't have any money. I mean, that's real. Mm -hmm. If you don't have a dollar, you don't have a dollar. Where are you going to go? But in between that time, when she has sex with Maury next to his girlfriend, Maylene, in the backseat of this car, Maylene mm -hmm. sees them. She and Maylene then have an argument about it in the bathroom where she's trying to stick up for herself or you know, say, lady, he's moved on from you to me. There's some level of her going along with this that doesn't feel like Stockholm Syndrome okay. at this point. All right. She's along for this super gross ride so <laughs> far. Is all of that predicated on this notion in her mind that he's a star? Is this sort of low-wattage celebrity all that that is predicated on? I think so, yes. And Maylene, I think, underscores that. She says, he's a star. He gets the best things in life. It's understood. <laughs> I guess it's all relative to where you're standing. It sure is. It brings me to one of the questions that I've been thinking about a lot and that I wanted to ask you about. What do you think about not just the performances of, but the portrayal of women in this thing. This is a super masculine movie, it feels like. Well, I say that it's only about one man in particular because everyone is subject to his whims and everyone is a victim of what he wants. And so he visits that wrath equally upon male and female, I think. But aside from that, the scenes you mentioned when they go back to the motel in the first place, how you've got these women as decoration, as objects in the background... How does that come across to you once you get to the end of the movie? What does it feel like? Well, I think if anything else, he actually emasculates some of the other characters. He neuters McGinty mm. in Chicago and then later Ted as well. Aside from them, we've got these two women. I do wish, even though I talked about comparing actors, I do wish a different performer had played Rosamond. Mm -hmm. I think it could have been even more interesting because I think that the interchange that they have in the bathroom I talked about Rosamond and, and Maylene in the bathroom Anna Capri is great in that I think she's great throughout this when she is trying to seduce him again in the bed I think about that scene and how spectacular she is and the lines that she's given are really strong and really say something about her about that top dog in this kennel and what that means, which is not much. She is also one of those irredeemable characters to me because it feels like when she gets the boot, she knows the deal. And the guy that picks her up almost immediately, it seems like she hasn't lost a step when she gets in that car. It seems like she's really sacrificed nothing. She's lost a meal ticket maybe for a short time, but she will soon be on the hustle again and will not be without for long. As long as her looks hold up mm -hmm. and there are cigarettes and wood paneling she's yeah. got a home but i wanted to 
keep going with what I, what okay. I was mentioning, which is I don't think that the woman who plays Rosamond, Elaine Heilweil, is particularly strong, and I wish she had a little bit more to give in certain sections. I'm still thinking there are other people that could have really upped the game on this. Who do you see in there instead? Amy Wright. Oh, imagine that. Shelley Duvall? Does it need to be someone who he would have had an eye on? Somebody who is a low-level beauty queen? Mm -hmm. Coming back to the question that you asked about the portrayal of women in the film, I think that the script actually gives them really interesting things to do. I love that, again, we're not trying to root for either of them. Mm -hmm. They are people who fit very well within this particular story. It seems like what they're experiencing feels pretty true to life as the film sets it up. You wander into the situation that's more than likely what would have happened. They ultimately don't feel like token characters to me any more than anyone else does. They have their important part to play, and it just continues to reveal more about Maury. Mm. So I really I really enjoyed that aspect of it. It didn't feel throwaway. felt like they had a lot of interesting things to do. So the next pivotal scene we get to is Maury stopping by to visit a local DJ. He refers to him specifically as a one-horse kind of guy. Small time, but still one of those guys that's very influential on those smaller circuits in getting your record played and getting people to come see you to buy your stuff. So he needs him. Because if you live and die on the road, you've got to get people to come to your tour date. Sure, promotion is a huge deal. Tellingly, the DJ mispronounces his name the entire time. Murray calls him Murray every time. <laughs> but what we see here is basically Paola. We see him buying airtime with a case of wild turkey and being blackmailed, essentially, into coming back to visit and or perform at a local event that this DJ is leaning on him awfully hard to do and stating, essentially, in no uncertain terms that if you don't do this, your record's done here. What I love, again, is Rip Torn delivering one aspect of Maury on the radio while in the interim doing something completely different. He mm. maintains this image. He is so good at this. Because, again, as I talked about earlier, he can't be left to his own devices to do anything good, really. He's got to stick with the script, and then you get your fixer in to say, no, we can't, we can't do this. We've got to move on. Right. That's why you have a manager. You hire a manager to say no. This, clearly, since it makes him feel somewhat out of control puts Maury in a terrible mood. We get back on the road, and we have a huge blow-up. The jealousy between the two women has come to a boiling point, and he's not going to listen to it anymore. He kicks Maylene out of the car, as we mentioned a moment ago. So she's done, leaves her on the side of the road, in the middle of nowhere, with her luggage. The Cadillac backs up. I love that. He tosses a wad of money at her. She tilts her chin up, which I love even mm. more. For what reason, though? Is it because you know she is showing him right now? No, but as soon as that car leaves, I'm picking that money up. Because you know she's going to. I, she's not going to leave that there. I read it more as, that's right. You should leave me okay. this money. Yeah. You have not defeated me. This being your first time watching it, when the car backed up the first time, what did you think was going to happen? I thought for a second... No, he's not going to let her get back in the car. I knew that that was not going to be the okay. case. I thought maybe he might um, shoot her for a second. Mm. Well, it's, yeah. You know, possibly. 
scream something at her. Who knows? I thought he was going to toss the scrapbook out of the car. Oh, okay. Which is what the argument was over. The Cadillac then backs up a second time. He gets out and picks that money back up. You didn't earn it. He's not going to leave money on the table. Nope. What did you think was going to happen the second time? Is that what you thought was going to happen? Yeah. Okay. Definitely. Not to say that they go for some sort of easy telegraphed choice. Yeah. It just seemed true to the character. And it's a real screw you. (laughs) Doubling down, maybe even tripling down on the screw you, the next thing that happens is he decides to make a side trip to go see his son on his birthday. Nothing could possibly go wrong here. Of course not. (laughs) Well thought out. He shows up and it's either four months early or eight months late for the particular birthday in question. He's brought gifts that are five to six years out of date for how old the kid actually is. He doesn't even remember his children's ages. And ultimately the message is, I can't hang around. His ex-wife, Galen, says, you can just wait a bit, have a cup of coffee. The kids will be home soon. You can see them. He refuses to do even that. I think it's, again, that sense of whatever decision I've made is the correct one. Mm -hmm. Everyone else is just in my way. I don't even think it's about being the correct one at this point. I think whatever decision I made is my decision. I don't even think it goes as far as whether it's right or wrong. It's just what I say. And he strikes her as they get into this argument. In the meantime, we've got a scene that I really like, which is Chicago and Rosamond talking just about whatever They're waiting in the car while he's inside with his ex-wife. And Chicago talks about his great love of cooking. There's a line in that that I love when they are debating the merits of cast iron skillet versus non-stick pans, in which he says, you may as well cook on an electric stove, in utter disgust, which is a feeling that I absolutely share. Definitely. You do not cook on an electric stove if you have any choice. The part that I really appreciated is more of the character work. We see his earnestness, which I believe in his desire to cook. he That's a love that he has. This scene takes a real turn for me. There's an earnestness, yes, but I don't know if we agree necessarily about what Chicago is after. Okay, before you tell me what you think, let me get to this one moment. Okay. Which is Rosamond talking more about her background. She mentions that her family, they ate out for every meal. All fast food, too. She mentions McDonald's, KFC. And the line that I love when he says, didn't your mother cook? And she says she would rather die. (laughs) And I think about that kind of implied level of upper middle class southern womanhood of a certain age. I could be completely interpolating this, but I think back to my background and I think of that woman who expects everything else to be done for them. I think about a story a friend of mine told me. His grandfather, they were Southern, married this woman who was a bit younger, but not that much. And she refused to be called grandmother. She made everyone call her Miss Liz. And when you went to Miss Liz's house, you were told, don't sit on the floor because Miss Liz does not sweep. (laughs) So this scene was an opportunity for me to actually really dig my teeth a little bit more into Rosamond's character. Okay. You have a quibble with Chicago in this. I do. At first, it seems like he's observing her and how bereft of hope she seems to feel because they have pulled up to what she is beginning to understand is Maury's wife and children's house 
She didn't know where they were going. She did not know what the destination was. But it is slowly dawning on her. And it is here when she says, essentially for the first time, I just want to go home. At first, his response seems to be, she seems so sad and lost. I'm going to talk to her to keep her busy, to get her mind off this, to get her through this. But the questions he asks and the way he begins to ask them, it seems to turn on this axis where he's angling for something too. It's not just, I'm trying to keep her busy. I'm trying to occupy her mind. It seems to be almost as if he's trying to get something out of the deal himself. He's so awkward. It seems to me maybe that he's in his own lost way. Like he's making a play for her in some way. I didn't quite read it that way. I got his awkwardness. To me, it was more like there is a human being sitting here when I'm always by myself otherwise. Mm. He's only talking about himself. He asks her a question in relation to what he just said. It doesn't really feel like he's trying to engage with her. He's trying to show himself to her. It's all about him in a very immature, mm. stunted Almost, growth yeah, way. Yeah, exactly. Arrested sort of way. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I agree that it is definitely stunted and arrested, but I think he is putting himself forward as a potential suitor. Ah, okay. Is what it feels like to me. He is talking about himself in the sense of almost an audition. Consider me. You know Maury has these things that he is now occupied with. Maybe I can step in there and be something for you. I'll have to watch it again and see how that reads. It does have one of my favorite line deliveries in this scene where she simply very plaintively says, where are we? I love her line delivery in that particular scene. She may not be super strong throughout, but she nailed that one. Yeah, agreed. But the scene wraps up back in the house with Maury refusing his wife's plea to just stay and see the children. And maybe the most honest moment for that character in the whole film, he knows what a true blue son of a bitch he is after he hits her and she comes back as he has his back turned to her, not even facing her. And she's saying, I know you didn't mean it. I know it was an accident. He turns and looks at her and just says, bullshit lady. He knows what he is. And that moment right there is the first, maybe only true self-assessment that takes place in it. He is slowed down enough and he may be, off balance enough after having committed violence against this woman that he is taking some sort of inventory doesn't last very long but at least for a moment it's clear to us and everyone else he knows full well who and what he is just as you're saying that it strikes me how sad it is that we allow these things to become so normalized Mm -hmm. this behavior that we create maury we allow him to be maury And there's just going to be another person and another person and another person to enter his orbit and do the same thing. 36 hours with this guy feels like a lifetime. And if at any moment you forget that it's such a short time frame, when we next go into a restaurant with this group, we see Bridgeway, who is Sandy from the very start of the movie. That was her sugar daddy. He's still in the same suit because... It just was the night before. So Bridgeway is in this restaurant completely hungover and still drinking. 
In the meantime, the group sits down and we see in the background, one of the busboys has clearly recognized Maury Dan and he decides, I done quit. And he's going to go home and grab his guitar, bring it back, become a star, I guess mm-hmm. is his reasoning. Big chance. Yeah. Because no one in this thing has a clear idea of how anything works, how anything works of their own particular skill level. So Bridgeway hears the name Maury Dan. He starts shouting it. He's recalling to Maury, Sandy, accuses him of being nothing but a rapist and a coward. Which part do you think bothers Maury the most? I'm going to go with coward. Yeah, definitely the coward part. They all go outside, and in a very short span of time, Bridgeway has this small switchblade. It looks like a very small knife to me. It's not a big knife. He goes to turn it on Maury, but it's so amateurish and clumsy that to me, it didn't feel particularly threatening. Mm. It only takes a moment, though, for Maury to actually get the knife and stab Bridgeway. Bridgeway is dead. Now, everyone has seen this happen. Chicago, McGinty, the restaurant manager has come out. There's the busboy, Ted. And this is where the scene that we did at the beginning of the show comes in, where Maury asserts to McGinty, you're going to have to fix this. At McGinty's suggestion, Maury asks Chicago, hey, come here a minute. Can you stand still on this one for me? I'd really appreciate it. I mean, can you take the rap for this? And Chicago says, sure, it should have been me anyway. Mm-hmm. Ted, the busboy, is going to back up Maury the whole way. McGinty's now got to start doing his job again and just pay off anybody that needs to be paid off. And again, just like the opening scene in this town 24 hours ago, everybody's working an angle and everybody is a terrible person. The restaurant manager takes the payoff. I saw exactly what your man told me to see. The busboy is literally pitching songs over a corpse. There's a dead man laying at their feet and this kid is pitching songs because he wants to be a star. No one has any glimmer of conscience. And the world keeps moving forward again. It does. Hurtling forward. I love that moment when Ted is playing the song for Maury and the camera pulls all the way back. (laughs) That terrible song. Terrible song. Yet, if you notice, when the camera does pull that far back, Maury's tapping that foot. There is something in this that he can use. Absolutely. And, again, he's going to use Ted another way. Now he needs a driver. Hey, you want a job? Mm -hmm. They're in the car on the way to... Yet another motel. Maury still hasn't slipped. We do see him, in a few moments, start to write a song Mm. and sing some of it. And it's that same sense of he's going in for this real sort of homespun Americana thing that at no point has happened to him. Mm. He's relating an experience, or really aping an experience, back to a listener. Because that's what's going to sell. That songwriting session is the last quiet moment we have with Maury before everything goes to hell. You can only outrun this kind of recklessness for so long. Law enforcement, among other people, converge on the motel room. You've got a side man who's there to join Maury's band. You've got Ted, the new chauffeur. You've got Rosamond. You've got the Alabama Highway Patrolman that stopped him when he was shooting at his entourage before that has brought another officer who's there to play the banjo for him. You've got show booker, promoter. You've got the district attorney from the jurisdiction that he just fled. 
Everybody wants a piece of him for something. He starts to lose it. He cannot get the people out of there, which is what he would normally do. Right. No one can take care of this, quote-unquote. Off to the side, there's a nice little exchange, again, with another of my favorite lines from Rosamond, where Ted asks her, not knowing anything that's happened in the previous day and a half, well, how long have you been Maury's girlfriend? And the look on her face when she says it's just too complicated to explain that it's only been a 24-hour whirlwind that they are now beginning to reap here that's all coming to a head. I love her delivery in that scene, too. But Maury can't take it. He's got to get out of here. He makes this awkward break for the Cadillac with Ted while the others are just watching from the motel. The car is taken off. The Cadillac is gone. Maury is driving this time. Ted is in the back. Ted, the whole time, is trying to get some feedback on these amazing songs that he's played for Maury. Hey, what'd you think about this? And Maury's saying, don't push it. You'll do okay. But basically, you've got this stopgap until Chicago comes back. Then we'll try to figure something out. And in a moment, Maury is gone. He has what appears to be a sudden heart attack. Oh, sure. And he's dead. I'm sure from the nonstop abuse and pushing his body beyond the limits of any human endurance, his heart explodes his eyes go wide in the rearview mirror, and the car runs off the road. Ted gets out. He's injured. He's running for help. And we just see Maury on the ground, open-eyed, just like Bridgeway was. And he's dead. To the strains of the sunny side Pretty. from the Carter family. Yes. A really nice, ironic piece of ending music. The end. Whew. Yeah. I think I had to unclench. Yeah. My grip. Now that we've gotten to the end, there are a couple of things I wanted to specifically ask about. Does it turn you off to be confronted by such a deeply cynical film? Because this clearly is that. Don Carpenter, who wrote it, and everyone else who has contributed to building this universe, has a very clear and specific idea about what they think about America at this level, at this time. And it is not a pretty picture at all. When you say doesn't turn me off, what do you mean? Does it make me depressed? Does it make me look at the world differently? Or does it make me just not want to approach the piece of art? Could be anything. How does it affect you coming from that perspective? I was, as I mentioned, enthralled by Rip Torn's performance mm. in this. So to me, it was an opportunity to see something great being done. I am from this strata to a certain extent. I can relate to these people. Middle class Southerners. Lower middle class Southerners. Yeah. yeah. Buffons and cigarettes. I can relate to that stuff. I have never surrounded myself with people of those tendencies to that extent, however. I haven't focused my adoration on sociopaths, thankfully. (laughs) Some would argue that. Possibly. Maybe for short periods of time. (laughs) But for the most part, for the vast majority of my time, I've been around amazing, wonderful, giving human beings. Yeah. So it doesn't turn me into a cynical creature any more so than I already am. Does that answer your question? Actually, before you tell me if I've answered your question, let me say something else. I've talked before, I think on the podcast, but you've certainly heard bucketfuls of this, about garbage people, Mm -hmm. watching garbage people in movies. I don't think of this movie as having garbage people, even though they are the lowest of the low. 
there's just something so much more interesting and creative happening that it elevates however much disdain I might feel for the characters themselves. The creation of it is pretty extraordinary. Okay. And the other thing was, it's such a unique self-contained thing. Does it fit within the tradition of the American Road movie at all? Does it feel like? It is constant travel and going from place to place and you see landscape. And it is of the place that they're in. You never think, oh, they're on sets in this. That that mm. did, never feels like the case. I guess it must, yeah. It's a I, pretty vast, encompassing genre. It is. I ask, though, because it feels, to me, I would argue no, specifically for one reason in that, to me, for it to be a road movie, the sort of thing that I'm thinking about when I use that phrase... There is a journey. There is a character starting at one point and ending at another. Not just burning through everything until that dies. He doesn't go through a transformation that I think is necessary for it to qualify, at least for the type of thing I mean when I use that phrase. So it exists for me outside of that tradition. You know, I think... Oddly, a subgenre it could fit in is more of the backstage mm. story. Okay. Even though it's not technically happening like that, it feels like that portrait of an artist. Yeah. Speaking of backstage, that makes me think of a third question. And this is really, I think, integral to the time and place that this occurred. And I think probably severely affected its reception at the time. Do you think the general public at that point had any idea of what shit heels their heroes often were. Do you think that people were just ignorant of that? Because clearly the characters in the film have no concept. They have no idea that these people are often awful, manipulative people. Yeah, they treat him like he's hometown boy, mm -hmm. family and home and hearth and all that garbage. And he's not. Is the 1973 audience not sophisticated enough at this point? Have they seen enough of it to realize this is the deal? I think they have. Hmm. Watergate okay. has already happened. I think if not for that, you wouldn't question your leaders quite as much. I think that progression in the mid to late 60s. Kennedy assassination on people aren't thinking as often. Our government wouldn't lie to us, and other things like that. Yes, I think that it is a very important time that it happened. However, I'm sure there was still a huge amount of, in the music and film world, still putting people like that on a pedestal. Mm -hmm. Still happens. Still happens, absolutely. So I think that was a little bit later to come, because you could still hush up rape and mm -hmm. illegitimate babies sure. and... No one had Killing a, people with your car, whatever. No one had a Twitter account that right. they then had to delete. Yeah. So I think a lot of stuff still got swept under the rug, but I think there was definitely questioning happening. Okay. So have we covered why you have chosen this, or do you have more that you want to include? Well, Rip Torn and his performance is clearly the big attraction, the big draw to it. But why I chose it for the show is because it illustrates this thing that we talk about often that you even mentioned earlier, connections, following connections. That makes me think of this, which makes me in turn think of that. I am going from your last choice of once, and we were talking about music films, and I really thought, oh, I would like to do a music film myself, and this is pulls apart from that experience, but your choice of that inspired this, and then 
when we were sitting with Lars last episode and how much we were focused on performance and personality. Put those two together and I couldn't end up choosing anything else except this. And also, strangely enough, Daryl Duke, the director of this film, who also made Silent Partner, which is a great heist film with Lantern favorite Elliot Gould. If you've never seen it, I really recommend it. It's really fun. Daryl Duke also directed a couple of episodes of Harry O. All right, so back to David Jansen. So the last few episodes and the chain that I followed from them led me to this. So it's a nice illustration of the thing we talk about frequently where we encourage people to check out what else this person has done, what other threads come out of that. And so all of that led me to this. I thought it was because you knew if you chose the last waltz, I would be insufferable. (laughs) It would be screaming and crying and gnashing my teeth the whole time. But anyway. I also did want to mention, it's also one of those things where it is a film that someone showed to me. And as much as we like to do that for people, it's nice to be able to recognize when someone does that for us. And so my friend Seth Wallace is actually the person that directed me to this film several years ago. And I thank him a ton for it because it's one of my favorites. Coincidentally, my recommendation was directly inspired by a conversation that we had when we were preparing the episode. When you talked about how people have a hard time coming to terms with the idea that people that they love and revere are monsters. Mm -hmm. It's also the connection to Geraldine Page from Rip Torn. Okay. My recommendation is Interiors from 1978, written and directed by Woody Allen. Geraldine Page, who plays the mother of three sisters in this film, is a monster. And these women are unable to come to terms with this idea. And what is most interesting to me is when the monster is in your own family. Mm -hmm. How some people have such a difficult time reconciling their idea of what a parent should be Mm -hmm. with what the reality of their parent is. Some people can never reconcile. Absolutely. This is a tour de force performance by Geraldine Page, and I am not overhyping it. I highly recommend this one. It's not the best film in the world. I think if you have never seen it and you come into it after having watched a lot of Woody Allen, Mm -hmm. it's going to feel quite tonally dissonant to you, and you might be expecting a punchline to appear at some point, and it never does. It's straight Bergman, basically. Straight Bergman. But come for Geraldine Page watch and marvel at what she is capable of and then find everything else that she's ever done and watch those things (laughs) how about you my recommendation is the flip side of the payday coin my recommendation is a tribute to my grandmother who is the person that took me to see this when i was five years old still remember sitting in the front maybe the second row of the vasca theater in lawton oklahoma watching this movie, which is W.W. and the Dixie Dance Kings. Not Choo Choo and the Philly Flash. No, that was on cable later. Okay. From 1975, directed by John G. Avildsen, starring Burt Reynolds, Art Carney, Ned Beatty, and Connie Van Dyke, and it's the screen debut of both Jerry Reed and Brad Dorff. My mind just exploded a little bit when you said that i was trying to put those pieces together in my brain it's super fun i really like it burt reynolds plays essentially a robin hood character an outlaw folk hero type he only knocks over specific brand gas stations traveling through the south doing that and he gets mixed up with the dixie dance kings a country and western band he gets mixed up in the music business they get mixed up in the uh, 
robbery business, and everyone ends up at the Grand Ole Opry. Sounds like a hoot. It's really good. And it is definitely personality-driven, much like this is personality-driven, but in the complete opposite direction. It's got that rakish charm, obviously being Burt Reynolds in 1975, but he is not a complete monster. No one in the movie is a complete monster. They're ultimately very charming and lovable. At most, they're rascals, (laughs) even though he's literally committing crimes. Yes, but there was a definite idea of a rascal in 1975. Sure. A benign rascal. Right, and Burt Reynolds himself says the conception of the film was to be the antithesis of something like Altman's Nashville. He didn't want to be cynical about these people that he was talking about, that they were portraying. He wanted to show affection for this strata of society, for these types of people, rather than be misanthropic toward them. And it really comes across that way. It's super fun. Again, like you mentioned about yours, maybe not the greatest film ever made, but it's a darn good time. We've done it again, babe. (laughs) Two wonderful recommendations, Interiors and WW and the Dixie Dance Kings. We did do it again. We always manage to do that somehow. You want a high five? Is your recommendation sometime going to be do it again? Isn't that, the, was that, uh, oh no, it's the Sidney Poitier and Bill Cosby. What is it? Uptown Saturday Night? Yeah, but the sequel. <laughs> we probably won't do a Bill Cosby recommendation. Oh yeah, too soon. Whoops. Although, Normalizing sexual predation. Should that say, just be the theme to everything now? There's certainly a lot to work from. There is no shortage of material, that's true. Anyway... I guess we won't high-five. Okay. Thanks for bringing us down. Sorry. We've got a few people to thank, right? We do, as always. People were super nice about our last episode, which we did with Lars Nilsson from the Austin Film Society. Thanks again, Lars. That was a super fun time, and we got a lot of good feedback about the show. And their crowdfunding campaign is going really well. There's just a few days left, and they're almost there. So again, if you hear this and you can contribute anything to that, again, we encourage you to support the arts in your community, Austin. Well, that brings us to the end of episode 36. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Facebook and Instagram. Just search for our name in either one of those venues. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore cast we wanted to take a second here and say thanks in addition to lars to everyone else who has given us feedback or has shared links to this show in particular right off the bat we wanted to say thanks to our friend doug mccambridge who hosts Plaincast, which is a podcast about the releases in the plain archive series they're a distributor from south korea who does fantastic beautiful versions of films that are slightly off the beaten track and he just had you on to discuss blue is the warmest color and you were awesome oh thanks babe it was a real pleasure thank you doug for having me thank you for getting me to watch the movie i feel so silly that it had taken me years to get to it it was a beautiful experience i can't wait to watch it again i do have something that i want to say okay in the episode I pronounced your name, Cole Lane, incorrectly. You are my husband. I pronounced your name incorrectly. However, in the once episode, in your show notes, you had my name written down and you spelled my name incorrectly. So I think we're even. That didn't make it to air. So I think actually yours being out it's there. It's burned per- out my brain. 
for public consumption actually trumps forever my slight typographical error. And he'll probably get 50 million listens with this, and so forever people will think your name is pronounced. They mispronounce the way my it's name. Spelled. They mispronounce my name all the time. Anyway, the point of that being is go to iTunes and subscribe to Plaincast. Yes. And enjoy all of the great films that he's covering because there's some real gems. And you have been on previously, what right. we mentioned. Yeah, I did The Wrestler, and that was a really fun conversation, too. In addition to Doug, we want to say thanks to Tim Lego, David Strong, the fine gentleman at Fuds on Film, as usual, Brian Sauer, Travis Trudell, and in particular this time, thanks to Maurice Berstinski, who is a new listener that just stumbled upon the show that sent us a really nice note about our Gregory's Girl episode and how much that film meant to him, and we had a really nice discussion about it. So thanks for checking us out, Maurice. I hope you find other shows in the old episodes that you enjoy just as much. We are on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play. If you would like to subscribe, rate, or review the show, we certainly would appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at our website, magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast.